Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. So glad that you chose to be with us on a gorgeous winter day. Um, You could have picked a lot of different things to do outside of uh, sitting in a room like this on a Sunday morning. Um, But the fact that you chose to be with us today, we are thrilled that you chose to be here. My name's Jason. I have the privilege of being on staff um, here at the church. And uh, we are kicking off a brand new series today. Uh, The series is entitled, Come and See. And if you are new to church or maybe you've been coming to church for a long period of time, let me explain to you really quickly how we do uh, talks and messages here at Creekside. Um, instead of trying to download all the information that we know on one particular topic all in one particular Sunday, we stretch that topic out over maybe two or three or four or five weeks, and uh, we call that a series of talks. And so you picked a great Sunday to be here uh, because we're kicking off the very beginning of a brand new series called Come and See. And so that way, if you show up next week and other people weren't here this week and they're sitting next to you, they'll be able to ask you questions like interrupt you during the movie kind of uh, feeling. And uh, you'll be like, no, 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 you had to come last week because you missed you know, the first part of the series. So Great Sunday to pick to be at church because we're kicking off a brand new series. Um, I want to start by just asking you a really simple question. It's a question that I have pondered many, many times, and perhaps you've never pondered it before. Perhaps you've never even thought of this question, possibly. And the question is this, how did Christianity get so big? Um, For the nearly 6 billion, 7 billion people that are on the planet today, statistically, 2.2 billion people would claim to be followers of Jesus. That's a lot of people. And although there are many other different religions in the world, Christianity still statistically is the largest religion of all of the religions in the world. 2.2 billion people claim to be followers of Jesus. Now, maybe you've never thought of this question before. Maybe you've never wondered how did Christianity get so big. Maybe it's just questions that nerdy religious people like me think about, and maybe you've never thought of it before. So I want to just ask you a more personal question that I think actually ties into this question of how did Christianity get so big? And the question is this, how did you get here? Not like here on planet earth, but how did you get here, literally here at Creekside Church this morning? And I'm not talking about how you got here, meaning like you got in the car and you drove, you know, whatever brand of car it is that you drive to get to church, but how did you actually get here? How did you arrive at Creekside Church? I'm convinced that for every single person in the room, with the exception of maybe one person in the room, the answer to the first question, how did Christianity get so big, is the same answer to this question for every single person in the room, how did we get here, with the exception of just maybe one person. And I think the answer to the question, both questions that we've already wrestled with this morning, is simply this. Someone invited us. Someone invited us. I think the only person in the room that could say, hey, I got to Creekside Church and nobody invited me, is a guy sitting up the back. If you don't know Vern, Vern, would you raise your hand up nice and high? I think Vern's the only person in the room that could honestly say, Nobody invited me to Creekside Church. 
Because several years ago, Vern was the, the one that had the idea of actually starting a church in his living room. And I thought, well, maybe his wife, Trish, could also say, you know, nobody invited me, but I actually think there was probably a conversation, I'm speculating at this point, years ago between Vern and Trish, where Vern convinced Trish to open up their living room on a Sunday morning and invite people to come and have church in their living room. So even Trish, maybe his wife would say, yeah, you know, I got here because Vern actually invited me to open up our living room on a Sunday morning and invite people to have church there. All of us in the room, we're probably, we're probably here this morning because somebody invited us. Now, you might say, well, Jason, that's not true of me. I got online when I moved to the area and I Googled churches around this area. And all of a sudden, Creekside Church popped up in a Google search. And so because of that, I came. The reality is somebody sat down at some point and said, there are going to be people that come to this area who are looking for a church. And so I think our church needs to create a website that will be an avenue to invite people to church, perhaps for the very first time. So even if you saw a sign, even if you went online, doesn't matter what it is, you probably were invited by somebody who intended to send you an invitation to get you to come to church. I remember the first time I ever heard of Creekside Church. It was about 15 months ago. I got a phone call from a friend of mine. His name's Dan. Dan works here at the church. Some of you know Dan and Kim really well. Dan called me. I was living on the other side of the planet in, in Colorado in the United States. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of Creekside Community Church. Now, here's what you need to know about Dan and his wife, Kim. Before they ever told me about the church, long before they ever invited me to come and visit the church, this time last year was the first time I ever visited in July of 2018, long before that ever happened, decades ago, Dan and his wife, Kim, long before they invited me, they invested heavily into my life when I was a little kid. You talk about an amazing investment. They poured tons of hours into my life when I was a child and as a teenager. And then even when my wife, Kristen, and I got married, our first couple of years of marriage, when we first uh, had our oldest son, who's now 18 years old, Xavier, when he was born and we brought him home from the hospital, they invested so many hours of their lives into our lives. And so over the years, Dan has literally invested and invited me into many different things. He's invested into my life, but he's also invited into my life. And so today I want us to talk a little bit about this concept of invest and invite. Invest and invite is a simple strategy that we have actually adopted here as a church as it relates to telling people about Creekside. Not only are we inviting people to come and check out the church, but long before we ever think about inviting people to come, we actually think it's incredibly important. We think it's probably maybe even more important than the invitation for us to actually spend an enormous amount of time and energy and effort into investing into relationships long before we invite them. Just like Dan did for me, he invested, then he invited me. We think that strategy, we think that concept is so, so important as we think about the community that God has placed us in here at Creekside. Now, this idea of invest and invite, 
This is not new to Creekside. In fact, this idea has been around since the very beginning of Christianity. We asked the question at the beginning of the message today, we asked this question, how did Christianity get so big? I actually think the answer to that question is in this simple concept of investing and inviting. Today, I want us to take a look at my favorite Bible character in all of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, um, I'm going to explain who this guy is. If you've been in church your whole life or if you've been studying the Bible for a long period of time, you probably know this person pretty well. His name is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he showed up on the scene in the first century at the exact same time as Jesus. Around the same time that Jesus showed up on the scene, this guy named John showed up on the scene as well. In fact, John's mother and Jesus' mother were cousins. So John the Baptist and Jesus were actually loosely related to each other. And John is a guy that I think exemplified probably better than anybody else in all of the Bible this idea of investing and inviting. John was a little bit of a crazy guy. He, uh, he lived out in the wilderness, like out in the bush. He, uh, he ate bugs. That was kind of his diet. He also ate honey. So if you're a big honey fan, maybe you and John have a lot in common. But John was kind of a weird, out there type of person. But for some reason, John developed a following. People started listening to John. People started practicing what he taught. And he developed quite a following, so much so that the leaders of the area, kind of the council members and the leaders of the cities around where John lived, caught attention of what John was doing. And they sent some people out to figure out, who is this weirdo? And why is it that so many people have started following him? They left him alone because they kind of feel, felt like he wasn't really bothering anyone as crazy and, and weird as he was. And so they kind of left him alone. But John would baptize people. That's why they called him John the, Baptist. John the Baptist. He would go down to the river and those people that started following him, he would baptize them as a symbol that their sins were being cleansed, that their sins were being forgiven as they followed after God, the God of Israel. Along, time, along the way, John was ministering, and Jesus actually shows up one day down by the river where John was there, baptizing people and where dozens of his followers were there listening to what he had to say. We pick up the story with another John. This is where it gets a little bit confusing. We pick up the story when another John, who was Jesus' best friend, recorded for us the day where Jesus showed up when John the Baptist was down by the river. So I know that's a little bit confusing, but there's two Johns, and maybe if you, as you've been reading your Bible over the years, you've been like, yeah, I knew there was two Johns. I just didn't know the difference between the two. So the one John who wrote a record of Jesus' life, who was Jesus' best friend, describes for us what happened the day that Jesus showed up when John the Baptist was down by the river baptizing some of his followers. We're going to pick up what John said uh, as Jesus shows up on the scene. It says in uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, that John the Baptist, who was baptizing when he saw Jesus, he said to all of the people that were down by the river that day, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I know when you first read that, you might think to yourself, well, you know, that's pretty typical, especially if you've been in church most of your life. You'd say, well, yeah, I know that Oftentimes, Jesus had other names, and people described him as many different things. And so John the Baptist is describing Jesus 
as the Lamb of God. And perhaps you've read that before and you've thought, yeah, that's Jesus. He was the Lamb of God. But what we need to understand this morning is that when John the Baptist pointed out that Jesus was there and he called him the Lamb of God, that would have been a significant title that John the Baptist gave to Jesus that day. In fact, it would have been a title that would have caught everyone's attention. Because up until that point in the Jewish tradition, you would never call someone the Lamb of God unless you were absolutely certain that they were the Messiah that you'd been waiting for. They would have never thrown that title around or used it lightly for someone unless they were absolutely certain that that person truly was the Messiah. In fact, when John said that, if Jesus truly wasn't the Lamb of God or the Messiah, John would have been accused of blasphemy. He would have been accused of giving somebody a title or a name that was reserved only for the Messiah, that was reserved only for God. And so John the Baptist would not have used this phrase lightly. He says to those guys that are down by the river that day when he sees Jesus, he says, hey guys, look, there's the Lamb of God. Essentially, there's the Messiah who has the ability to remove all of our sins of every person in the world. Not only did John do it that day, but John records for us what John the Baptist said the next day. He says this, the next day, John was there again down by the river with two of his disciples this day. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said the same thing again. He reiterated this title that he gives to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now at this point in time in history, Jesus doesn't have any followers yet. So Jesus has zero followers. John the Baptist, down by the river, actually has dozens, maybe even hundreds of followers, and at least two of his followers were there that day down by the river, and he says to them, hey, look over there. There's Jesus again, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look what happens next. John records for us immediately after John the Baptist says these words to his two disciples, the two followers of his. Immediately it says, when they saw Jesus, when these two disciples heard him say this, they began to follow Jesus. So if you're keeping score, Jesus zero followers. John at least had two followers. Now John has zero. Jesus has two. The first two followers ever to follow Jesus simply followed him because this guy, John the Baptist, said, hey, look, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this next part of the story, I think, is actually somewhat humorous. You may not think it's humorous, but these two guys begin to follow Jesus. And I don't know what it was like back in those days, but today, if I was down at North Lakes Westfield, and all of a sudden, two guys started following me around, and I noticed that they were following me around behind me, and I kept turning around and trying to lose them in the shopping center somehow, but I kept turning around and noticing that they were still there. I'll be honest with you, I'd be a little weirded out by that. I'd be a little freaked out by two guys just showing up and starting to follow, him, follow me around. And so Jesus, I think, possibly, was a little freaked out by these two guys that just suddenly started following him around. Maybe he was a little weirded out by these two guys that are just tagging along behind him. John says to us that this is what happens next in the story. Turning around, Jesus saw them following, and he asked them, what do you want? (laughs) 
Why are you following me around? What are you doing following me around? What is it that you want? And then if it wasn't weird enough that they were actually following Jesus around without telling him why, they then ask him this question. They said, Rabbi, which is teacher, where are you staying? I'm telling you right now, if I'm down at Westfield, and I turn around and I ask a couple of guys, why are you following me around? And then they respond with, where is it that you live? I've lived in the United States for the last 15 plus years. I have no problem pulling a gun out at Westfield and saying, you have no business asking me where I live. I'd be a little freaked out. I don't know if you would be a little freaked out, but I think Jesus possibly was a little weirded out by these two guys that just show up, start following him around. And then when he asks the question, why are you following me? They respond not answering the question, but with a weirder question, where is it that you're staying? Now in that context, you have to understand that rabbis or teachers, which is what Jesus was, would have some people that would follow them around and kind of do life with them to learn as much as they could from these rabbis and teachers. So it really wasn't that weird that these two guys asked the question, hey, where is it that you're staying? Essentially, they were asking this question. Jesus, we would like to do life with you so that we can learn from you just like they had been doing with John the Baptist. If you don't get anything else out of what we're talking about today or out of the whole service today, don't miss how Jesus responds. His response to these two weird guys following him around is probably one of the most powerful responses Jesus has ever given. Don't miss what Jesus says. After they ask the question, where is it that you're staying? Jesus turns to them and says, come, he replied, and you will see. Jesus simply extends an invitation for them to come and see. Why are you following me around? Where are you staying, Jesus? Jesus simply responds and says, hey, come and see. Come with me. And then the next thing that Jesus does with these two guys is so profound. So profound. Whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or you're still trying to figure out even if Jesus exists or not, what happens next in the story, I think, radically changed these two guys' life. It says that after Jesus invited them to come and see, they went and saw where he was staying. And then they spent a day with Jesus. Have you ever been at a dinner party or maybe in a meeting where they're trying to break the ice and get people to have conversations? And they ask a question. I've had this question asked of me. If you could spend an entire day with anyone in all of history, who would you pick? Have you ever been asked that question? Maybe an icebreaker at a team building exercise or maybe you're at a dinner party or even just going through some of those cards that you can ask questions at at a party and somebody asks you the question, in all of history, if you could spend one day with one person, who would you pick to spend the entire day with? These guys got to spend an entire day with the person that I would say, if somebody asked me, hey, who would you like to spend a day with in all of human history, I would probably say I'd love to spend a day just hanging out with Jesus. These two guys not only got to find out where he lived, but they got to spend an entire day with him. And I'm convinced that that experience of spending a day with Jesus was the experience that radically changed their life. 
You'll notice that John, who's recording this for us, he didn't write, Jesus said to them, come and you will see. And then he took them into a temple and he spent a day explaining to them everything about who Jesus was. Notice that John doesn't say, now Jesus took them to the temple and he took out the Old Testament and explained everything about the Messiah that led them to understand that Jesus truly was the Messiah. John doesn't say that. John simply says that they went and spent the day with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to just spend an entire day with Jesus or not. But if you've ever taken the time to do that, I think that would be a life-altering day for you. Maybe you're trying to figure out whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe you're trying to figure out if God really exists or not. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a very long time. I think the importance of spending time with Jesus, no matter where you are on the journey with Jesus, is one that would be life-changing for all of us, just like it was for these two guys that began to follow Jesus. So life-changing, so life-changing, that it became something that they wanted other people to experience as well. In fact, John continues with the story and introduces us by name to one of the guys that was following Jesus. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So we know at least one of the names of the followers of John the Baptist that were there that day when John the Baptist said, hey, look, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes the sins of the world. One of these guys, his name was Andrew, and his brother's name was Peter. And it says that Andrew, the very first thing that he did after spending the day with Jesus was this. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, Peter, and to tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Imagine for a moment, Andrew gets to spend an entire day with Jesus. And the very first thing he does the next day is to go and find his brother. The experience must have been so incredible for him. The experience must have been so life-changing for him that the very first thing he thought to do the next day was to go find his brother Simon Peter and bring him to Jesus. That's how amazing the experience was for Andrew. I don't know about you. I don't know what your experience with Jesus has been like. But for me personally... My experience with Jesus has been so life-changing that I decided a long time ago, the rest of my life, the best thing I could possibly do is to invite other people to experience Jesus too. I don't know what your experience has been like with him. Perhaps it's not been that life-changing yet for you. But for many of us, we would say that meeting Jesus and experiencing a relationship with him has been life-changing for us. And the example that Andrew gives us is that the very first thing that he goes and does is get his brother, Peter, to bring him to Jesus. Story continues. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. They were down in Judea where John the Baptist was baptizing people in the southern part of Israel at the time. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. So let me explain really quickly. Philip, this guy that's introduced into the story, a lot of people believe that he was one of the two. 
Andrew and Philip were the first two followers of Jesus that were hanging out with John the Baptist when he said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now Jesus has three followers. He's got Andrew and Philip that were there originally, and Andrew's brother Peter is now joined them. And Jesus says to them, hey, I'm going to go on a journey. I want to head out of, out of Judea and head up to Galilee where Jesus was originally from. And immediately these guys who were from Bethesda said, well, wait a second. We're from Galilee as well. We're from that part of Israel. We'd like to go with you. In fact, let me help you kind of get the context of where they were on the map. We'll bring up a map on the screen. Up in the top part of Israel is Galilee. That's where Jesus was from. He was from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. But they were also from this area over here, just to the right of Galilee, Bethesda. So they were kind of from that area. But they were all hanging out with John the Baptist down here in Judea. And so when Jesus said to them, hey, let's go on a trip together, they were like, well, we're from that part of Israel as well. We'd love to go together with you. Now, the distance from down here in Judea where they were all the way up to Galilee was about 100 kilometers. So it would be about from here to Nusa away. And so if you Google map how long it takes to walk from here to Nusa, it takes about 20 hours. I'll save you the time of having to research that. It takes about 20 hours to do this. So this is a significant trip that Jesus is inviting them to join him on. Well, all of the sudden, Philip, one of the first two guys that was a follower of Jesus, has an idea. He wants to invite somebody to join them on this trip. In fact, John goes on in the story and it says this, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip goes to this fourth guy, Nathanael, so we're starting to see some followers that begin to follow Jesus and says to Nathanael, hey, the prophets, all of the guys that we've been reading about in the temple for years, telling us that there's a Messiah that's gonna come, we found him, we found him. It's Jesus. Jesus was known in this part of the world. So Nathaniel probably was like, oh yeah, I've heard of that guy. Jesus of Nazareth. But the moment that Philip says to Nathaniel, Nazareth, all of the sudden Nathaniel's mind went completely blank of anything else other than where Jesus was from. In fact, listen to Nathaniel's response, kind of humorous. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. It's kind of like last Sunday, when I mentioned that I was a huge New South Wales blues supporter, I thought I'd bring that up again just for a moment. Some of you in the room were thinking to yourself, what was this church thinking? Can anything good come from New South Wales? That's impossible. I guess we'll find out on Wednesday night if anything good can come from New South Wales, won't we? And then I might have to take that all back next Sunday. We'll just see. But that's essentially what Nathaniel was saying. It was like, Nazareth, is there anything decent that comes out of Nazareth? In other words, it's impossible that Jesus is the Messiah that throughout all of history, the prophets have been telling us about this great Messiah that's going to come and save us. That's impossible that he comes from Nazareth. And I can only imagine Philip thinking to himself, I've spent an entire day with this guy, Jesus. The experience that I had with Jesus during that day that I spent with him was life-changing. So much so that I'm convinced that this Jesus of Nazareth, 
I'm convinced he truly is the Messiah. And perhaps Nathaniel thought to himself, what can I tell Philip that will convince him that Jesus truly is the Messiah? What can I tell him about that day that I spent with Jesus that Nathaniel would quit thinking about Nazareth and all of a sudden realize that Jesus truly is the Messiah? What can I explain to him? What part of the Jewish scriptures, which of the prophets could I go to that would help Nathaniel to understand that this guy Jesus that I spent the day with experienced the most incredible experience? What could I say to him that would convince him that Jesus truly is the Messiah. John doesn't write this for us, but I imagine that maybe in that moment, Philip thought to himself, you know, Jesus didn't try to explain to us who he was. Jesus just simply said, why don't you come and see? So it's interesting that when Philip invited Nathaniel He used the same invitation that Jesus used. He said these words, come and see. Philip probably figured out that no amount of explanation would help Nathaniel to really understand who Jesus was. But that the greatest thing that Nathaniel could do to understand who Jesus was was to just come and see. Just like I spent the day with Jesus and It changed my life. I think Philip probably thought, you know what? If Nathaniel just comes on the trip, if we spend 20 hours traveling up to Galilee with Jesus, by the end of the trip, Nathaniel's going to say, Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he simply invited Nathaniel. Philip said to him, just come and see. Just come and see. This concept that we're talking about this morning, over the years, the the church in general, not just Creekside, but the church in general, has given this concept a a pretty fancy title. And some of you probably already know what the name is. It starts with the letter E. Anybody imagine what this is all about that we're talking about? Evangelism. Evangelism is this concept that we're talking about this morning. This concept of evangelism actually comes from a Greek word, euangeliso, which simply means this, spreading good news. That's all it means. And so Nathaniel, in conversation with Philip, he was just spreading the good news to Nathaniel of what he had experienced with Jesus. Unfortunately, and maybe you're here today and church is not a part of your normal routine or Maybe you've actually had an experience with evangelism and the last thing you would describe it as is somebody spreading good news. You would describe it as something else. But somehow, someway, over time, the church has taken evangelism and instead of just spreading good news, we've turned it into this idea. Evangelism is getting people to make a decision to follow Jesus. That's what evangelism is. And so because of that, Maybe you've been to some training where you were taught how to share the truth about Jesus and to get people to a point where you could ask them this question. If you were to die today, if you were to leave this cup of coffee that we're having, get in your car and have an accident and get killed, do you know where you'd spend eternity? All for the sake of trying to get people to make a decision to follow Jesus. 
But that's not where evangelism first started. Evangelism first started with one person having an experience with Jesus that was so life-changing that all they could do is just go and spread the good news to somebody else like their friend Philip and invite them, invite them to come on a journey with Jesus so that they could experience the same thing too. In fact, the way I like to describe evangelism is by telling people what an evangelist is. An evangelist is simply this, an enthusiastic advocate or a raving fan. If you spend enough time with me, you will find that I become a raving fan of a lot of things and I love telling people about them. I'm a raving fan of a number of different companies. I'm a raving fan of Apple products. I'm sorry if you're not an Apple person, you don't like Apple products, but I am a raving fan of Apple products because for me, they just work. I don't have to do anything to them. They, they just seem to work really, really well. So I'm a raving fan of Apple. As I began to explain to my family over the last several months about our move to Queensland from the United States, I was sharing with them a number of things that I became a raving fan of in this area over the last 12 months on several of my visits. One of the places that maybe you've experienced that I'm a raving fan of is this beach downtown Brisbane. I'm a raving fan of this place. And I've tried to explain to people in the United States what this beach is all about. And they're like, well, it looks like a big swimming pool in the middle of a city. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't get it, okay? They've brought sand in. You're sitting in the city at the beach. Like, you don't get it, okay? And I try to explain it to them. I try to say to them, no, 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 it's not a big pool in the middle of the city. It's a beach, a man-made beach in a city. But no amount of explaining it to them helps them to understand exactly how amazing this beach is. It's not until I actually brought my wife on a last trip I was here in February, and I took her down there, that all of the sudden her mind was blown away. She's like, they just built a beach in the middle of a city. This is amazing. I know, I've been trying to explain it to you. But you don't get it until you actually experience it. It's kind of like what we were talking about these kids at camp this week. We were celebrating these incredible stories of these kids that went to camp. And many of you who are just incredibly generous with your finances make it possible for these kids to experience something that they probably never would have the chance to experience otherwise. But until they actually experience it, no amount of explaining will help them understand what it's really like. Another place I'm a huge fan of, and I've been telling my family all about it, telling other people about it, is this place, Eat Streets. Huge fan of Eat Streets. As you can tell, um, I'm a huge fan of Eat Streets. And so, you know, as I explain it to people, I'm, I'm like, you know, they got these containers and food trucks, and they're, oh, yeah, I've, I've been to a place with food trucks before. No, 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 no. No, it's not just food trucks. They built like a food truck city. And then they've got these bands that come in, live music and food from every place around the world that you can think of. Oh, yeah, I've been to a food truck before. No, no, no. It's not a food truck. But until they actually come and experience it, no amount of explaining it to them will help them to truly understand what it's about. One of the things I found the most frustrating over the last 20, nearly 20 years that I've been living in the United States is trying to explain to an American what hot chips are. 
for an Aussie, that's so frustrating. Because immediately they're like, oh, yeah, we got fries. Oh, it's not fries. It's not Maccas. Hey, you go down to a local milk bar and you order $5 worth of hot chips, which would feed three families. And you get to take it just for yourself. And they're so good. Oh, yeah, we got French fries. What? They're not French fries. They're, they're hot chips. In fact, talking about this so much this morning, eat streets and hot chips and so on, it's making me kind of hungry. And so I thought to myself, oh, look, they actually provided hot chips on stage. And these are not just any old hot chips. These are hot chips with chicken salt. Yeah, some of you are like, mate, you're not going to eat those in front of us, are you? I am. Oh, yeah, these are good. These are amazing hot chips with chicken salt. Some of you are not chicken salt people, and you still call yourself a Christian, which I can't even figure out. <laughs> Those two things are synonymous, I think. These are so good. Anybody else love hot chips with chicken salt? Yeah, this guy over here. Enjoy these for the rest of the service, because I can't finish them. <laughs> Trying to explain to somebody who's never had a hot chip with chicken salt on it before, what that experience is like is one of the most frustrating things I've ever experienced. In fact, I got so sick of trying to explain it to people that several years ago, when my wife and I and our three kids were here in Australia on a holiday for a few weeks, we went down to a market in Sydney and we bought three kilos of chicken salt which is like a yellowy powder sort of thing. And we took it back with us to the United States. Imagine the scene in Los Angeles at the airport with customs, trying to get yellow powder through the border. And you're explaining that it's chicken salt. We're like, yeah, sure, it's chicken salt. What the heck is chicken salt? Here's the most amazing thing that happened. Several of our friends would come over and we put some chicken salt on some hot chips and they were sold. In fact, I could have started a chicken salt distribution company in the States and been a millionaire because once they experienced it, it was life-changing. And I know that this is a stretch. I know this is a stretch. Hot chips and chicken salt and Jesus, really? I know that's a stretch. But the point is this. Those first followers of Jesus, they understood what the goal was. They understood that the goal was not to explain something, but to experience someone. They understood that if I could just get my friend to come and spend a day with Jesus, it would change their life. No amount of explaining would do the job of per people actually experience a day, experiencing a day with Jesus. A good friend of mine, Joel, who pastors a church over in the States, he says it this way. I love the way he says it. He says this, Jesus needs to be experienced, not just explained. Just like hot chips and chicken salt, <laughs> you've got to experience it because I can't explain it to you. If you've never had it before, you'll never fully understand what it's like. Jesus is the same way. I can explain Jesus to you for the rest of the day. But when you experience what Jesus is like, that's what's life-changing. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, some of you are like, well, wait a second. 
Jason, back in the first century when Jesus was actually around, that was a lot easier to invite somebody to spend a day with Jesus because he was physically there. We live in 2019. Jason, what, what does it look like to invite somebody to come and experience Jesus today? Later on in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, the Apostle Paul, one of the followers of Jesus who wrote most of the New Testament for us, he actually described, this is crazy to think about, he described what we're doing this morning, church. He described the relationships that we have with each other that are followers of Jesus. He described it in this way. He said this, the church is the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus even said these words, it will be better off for you when I leave because I'm going to send something way better, my spirit. So when I get out of here, I'm going to send my spirit, which is going to be way better than if I was there because I can only be in one place at one time. My spirit can be everywhere across the planet. And every time we get together, Paul would say, every time you get together with each other, those of you that are followers of Jesus, you are the body of Christ. So the invitation in 2019 for somebody that doesn't have an experience with Jesus and you've tried to explain it to them is to just come and see. Just come to church on a Sunday morning. Just come and hang out at our house for dinner with some friends of ours from church. Just come and have coffee with us. Just come and experience the difference of what it's like to be in relationship with other people that are following Jesus as well. Because at the end of the day, in the first century, for Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Peter, just like it's still true today, Jesus needs to be experienced, not just explained. So invite them to come and see. And maybe if you're here today and you'd say, you know what, Jason, I'm not really a church person. I'm, I'm not a follower of Jesus yet. I'm still trying to figure the whole thing out. In fact, maybe somebody just invited you here today because they wanted you to come and see. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. Keep hanging out with some people. And maybe even just ask God, you know, God, I'm not sure if you're there. I'm not sure if you're real. But man, if you are, I would love to experience what Jesus is really like. Here's what I know to be true. God, your heavenly father, no matter where you're at, where you're at in your journey with Jesus, still trying to figure it out or you've been journeying with him for a long time, you ask him that question, you pray to your heavenly father who loves you and cares for you so much, you say to him, hey, I don't know whether he's real or not, but I'd like to experience Jesus if he is real. He will make it possible for you to experience Jesus because he loves you so much. Follower of Jesus here this morning, maybe you need to carve out some time to just be with Jesus this week. Just to hang out with Jesus. A fresh experience of what it's like to just be with Jesus. And I think from that experience, your response, the only natural response, would be like Philip and like Andrew, to invite those around you to just come and see. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that although there are 2.2 billion people around the planet 
who claim to follow you. The strategy from these first two people to the 2.2 billion people today is still the same. God, would you help those of us that are followers of you to have the boldness and the courage to invite people just to come and see. Not try to explain everything, but to invite people to experience Jesus. God, I pray for that person that's here this morning that perhaps is still trying to figure all this out. They're not sure if God's real or if Jesus is who he said he was. God, I pray that they might just continue to seek you and experience what Jesus is like. God, I pray that all of us would understand this morning this simple truth that your son Jesus needs to be experienced, not just explained. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.